millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, I'm Benjamin Ashwell from Talking History, the Italian Unification. Rome is known as the Eternal City, but even there things change. The day came when Rome was no longer part of the Roman Empire. Robin has already told us the story of how Justinian organized the reconquest of Italy in his attempt to recreate the Roman Empire of old. His conquest in the north didn't last very long, but the continued presence of the Byzantines in southern Italy for 500 years meant that the south, even today, has a strongly Greek character to it. Byzantine influence in the north was not totally gone either. A small town of refugees in a lagoon remained loyal. This place was called Venice, and it would grow strong as first a vassal and later an ally of Byzantium, only to lead the sack of Constantinople in the Fourth Crusade in an Oedipus Rex-like tragedy. As Rome was the father of Byzantium, and Byzantium the father of Venice and the guardian of southern Italy, the two halves of the once mighty Roman Empire remained linked. Fast forward to the 19th century. Italy is a collection of small states in the north and one big state in the south. As Italy tries to unify, the lasting cultural differences between the north and south that the Byzantines helped create could still be felt. Now, let's sit back and listen to Robin tell us how the Byzantines shaped the world. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 35, The Lucky Break. Last time, we said hello and goodbye to the Emperor Tiberius II, a man who had tried to prioritize the Persian frontier at the expense of the Balkans. As he lay dying, Tiberius appointed the Master of Soldiers for the East, Maurice, as his successor. Maurice had just won a significant victory over the forces of the new Sassanid king Hormizd, but was faced with an unenviable position. Although he had a formidable army in the East, he could not break it up and send men west until the Persians agreed a truce. Despite being repeatedly beaten, King Hormist could still marshal large enough forces to threaten the Byzantines if they diluted theirs. But men were desperately needed in the West. Slavic settlers were still spreading deeper into imperial territory, and the Avars were looking greedily at the undefended frontier. 
Maurice could only dream of thinking beyond that to send reinforcements to Italy or even Spain. To make matters worse, Tiberius had spent so lavishly that the large eastern army was becoming hard to pay. I think it would be fair to say that Maurice inherited the most difficult political situation of any emperor during the course of the History of Byzantium podcast. Maurice was born in a town called Arabissus in Cappadocia in central Anatolia in 539. His first language was Greek, making him the first native Greek-speaking emperor since Anastasius. Born into a well-off family, Maurice received an excellent education and actually began his career in imperial service as a notary. Once he switched to a military career, though, his talent was recognised, and his good relationship with Tiberius led to his promotion to Master of Soldiers for the East during the 570s. The battles that Maurice had won against the Persians were the most impressive victories for Byzantium for the last couple of centuries. We have no Procopius around to tell us about Maurice's generalship, but it seems clear that he was a highly capable commander, and although he had a very large army to do his bidding, organising and leading 50,000 men is never an easy task. Maurice therefore had a good reputation when he came to the throne, intelligent, competent and honest. The new emperor was also known for his resolve and determination, a characteristic that would in time be seen by some as inflexibility. If you want to get an idea of what Maurice might have looked like, then take a look at the picture which accompanies today's podcast at thehistoryofbyzantium.com or on the Facebook page. The picture comes from a book called Rulers of the Byzantine Empire. Thanks to the Roman obsession with statue building, we know what many of the classical era emperors looked like. Their faces, wrought in stone, still stare out at us from museums today. But by the Byzantine era, or should I say the Christian era, statues became less common, in part because of the second commandment against worshipping graven images, something the cult of the Caesars had once required. As we will hear in today's podcast, images of the emperor were still made, and some were taken out for the troops to acclaim, but they were paintings or portraits which are far more perishable than stone or marble so we don't often know what emperors actually looked like. That's partly why Justinian stands out so much in our minds, because you can go see him on the wall in Ravenna. On the Facebook page, I've been changing the cover photo to whoever the emperor currently is, and for Justin II and Tiberius II, I've had to rely on coins, because that's all we have. So for Maurice, it's a nice change of pace, to be able to present this modern drawing of what he may have looked like. But please take this picture with a pinch of salt. Wherever I can, I will show you the image which the portrait is based on, and you can see the elaboration of the modern artist. Following the precedent set long ago, Maurice gave up his command of the army upon becoming emperor and appointed a new man to lead in the east. The man chosen was John Meistercon, or 
John the Moustached, who took over with clear instructions to subdue the region of Azranin. Azranin was southern Armenia, on the Persian side of the border. Last episode, I mentioned one of Maurice's achievements had been to capture the important fort of Afuman in this area, which gave the Byzantines a base from which to expand their control. The map which accompanied episode 11 will remind you of where all this was taking place, but southern Armenia is just north of the now Persian-controlled cities of Dara and Nisbis. In order to get some troops back to the Balkans to deal with the crisis there, Maurice needed peace with the Persians. However, the new King of Kings was having none of it. As I mentioned last time, Hormis IV didn't have any pressing reason to make peace, and had a big incentive to keep fighting. He was the son of the great King Kusro. He wasn't about to be seen as some inferior version of his father, meekly making peace with the Romans. It's a similar scenario, in a way, to Justin II, who provoked this whole war in part because he wanted to mark himself out as a worthy successor to Justinian. So Maurice ordered his new master of soldiers in the east to capture as much territory as he could, so that the emperor would have some new bargaining chips with which to tempt Hormis to the peace table. However, quick conquests in Armenia were not easy to come by. As History of Rome listeners know, this area has been the buffer zone between the two empires for 500 years. The main reason for that is that Armenia was largely mountainous. Remember that that's why Dara and Nisbis were so crucial, because they held the line where the mountains gave way to flat ground that it was easier for armies to operate from. So up in the mountains and valleys of Azranin, John could only make slow progress. He spent most of 582 and 583 battling with Persian forces sent against him and struggling to capture other towns or strategic locations. He found it hard to get all the supplies he needed. The local populations know the land far better than him, and if they don't want to help, then you're in trouble. By 584, Maurice decided to replace John and his moustache with the emperor's brother-in-law, Philippicus. Philippicus turned to raiding Persian territory to get better results, and although the thrusts into Mesopotamia in 584 and southern Armenia in 585 were successful, they didn't cause enough damage to change the Persian diplomatic position. It's only in 586 that Philippicus managed to bring a significant Persian army to battle. Once again, the large Byzantine force was victorious when the Persians rout and flee back to Dara. One of Philippicus's successful sub-commanders was a certain Heraclius, who we will definitely meet again. After this victory, the path was clear for Heraclius to lead a raid on Medea in Persian territory, and by the campaign season of 587, several other Persian forts were captured by Philippicus's lieutenants. However, none of this was enough to force King Hormis to make peace. In fact, despite his success, Philippicus had had to release part of his army to return to the Balkans. This was somewhere between ten and 20,000 men who were desperately needed to help fight the Avars. 
So the king of kings kept ignoring peace overtures and suffered the raids and defeats, knowing that the strain of war on multiple fronts was taking its toll on the Byzantines. Over in the Balkans, those six years had been pretty miserable for imperial citizens. In spring 583, the Avars asked Maurice to increase his payments to them from 80 to 100,000 gold pieces a year. The emperor was already short of cash and believed that if he began his reign giving in too easily, the Avars would just keep asking for more. So he refused, and the Avars devastated what was left of the imperial defences on the Danube. The Avars flew out of Sirmium and captured Singidunum and Viminiceum, two of the neighbouring strongholds on the border of Illyricum. Then they raided all the way along the Byzantine side of the river to the Black Sea and stayed there for the winter. This was a provocative move, of course, with the Avars setting themselves up in a Byzantine town and taking local food and tax for themselves. It was a clear message to Maurice, saying... Look, if you don't pay us, then we're going to invade, we're going to take your stuff, and we're going to mock your authority by staying all winter with our feet up on your table. So in 584, the emperor agreed to pay the increased amount, and the Avars left, giving back the towns they had taken, except for Sirmium, of course. Maurice managed to scrape together a small force, just a few thousand soldiers, and sent them to deal with one of the many groups of Slavs now living in the Balkans. Their commander, Comentiolus, led them to victory, just outside the long walls in Thrace, but this was the first group of Slavic migrants to really encounter any military resistance. Maurice knew that this wasn't good enough, and that's why by 585 he had recalled those ten to 20,000 men from the east so that Comentiolus could lead at least one field army to turf out some of the invaders. Which he then did, encountering a group who had settled near Adrianople. However, that brings us up to 586, when the Avars broke the terms of the peace again and invaded the Balkans. In the same summer, a large group of Slavs attacked Thessalonica, the large imperial city in northern Greece, which also happened to be suffering from an outbreak of plague. This all put Maurice, again, in a fairly desperate position, justifying King Hormis' decision not to make peace. Comentiolus was soon defeated by the invading Avars, and further reinforcements had to be called on from Armenia to finally convince the Avars to return home. Meanwhile, the Slavs did not take Thessalonica, but did continue to raid Greece. With no end to his multiple wars in sight, Maurice felt he had to take fairly drastic action to avert financial disaster. You see, to keep fighting year after year was enormously expensive. I know our walking tour was a long time ago, but if you remember... The Byzantines normally had six field armies. Ignore for a moment Justinian's conquests. That's one in Illyricum and one in Thrace, i.e. West and East Balkans, one in the East and one in Armenia, and the two precentral armies, the armies in the emperor's presence, who lived in Anatolia and around Constantinople. 
Although all these soldiers had to be paid, they didn't all have to be supplied by state revenue. A lot of them lived in barracks or towns who would feed them locally, and if they weren't needed for a campaign, then they wouldn't need new equipment or clothing. However, for ten years now, since the end of Tiberius's recruitment drive in 578, the entire Byzantine military had been on campaign. Either in the east or the Balkans, men were at war and had to be fed from the land or by the state, which meant less tax coming to Maurice, and the tax that did come in was going straight out the door to feed, clothe, and arm his soldiers. Men on campaign die, of course, and their replacements have to be trained, clothed, and armed all over again. Add in the tribute being paid to the Avars, and Maurice calculated that the imperial treasury was likely to run out of money before any of these conflicts could be resolved. In 588, the emperor attempted to cut his expenses. He sent out an order to the army of the east that they would no longer be paid the allowance they usually received to buy their clothes and weapons. If you remember, way back during the crisis of the 3rd century, Diocletian had begun the process of supplying a soldier as part of his pay. And more recently, it was Anastasius who put things back on a money footing. The concept was popular with the men, because every year they'd received an allowance, and if they didn't actually need any new clothes or weapons, then they could just pocket the cash. Maurice reckoned that by switching back to a supply system, he could reduce the army's pay by a quarter. The troops in Mesopotamia were informed of the new policy at Easter 558 by their new commander Priscus, who arrived to replace Philippicus at the same time. The result was mutiny. I mentioned last episode that during Maurice's time in command, pay had once been late and mutinous noises were heard. This time, the army refused to accept the order. They destroyed the portraits of the emperor which were carried on campaign and threw stones at Priscus, who fled. Once at a safe distance, Priscus sent word that he would restore their allowances, but the army weren't interested. Instead, they turned to one of the local commanders in Syria to become their new general. He was unhelpfully named Germanus, but was no relation to Justinian's cousin. This was something of a bizarre situation, because the army wasn't declaring against Maurice, just against his appointed commanders. The emperor sent Philippicus back to take charge, but the army rejected him as well. When rumours of what was going on reached King Hormizd, he was thrilled, and when summer arrived, a Persian army crossed the border and attacked the city of Constantina, while another launched into Armenia to attack Martyropolis. Fortunately for the Byzantines, Germanus was a responsible man and refused to watch the enemy raid the empire while his army sulked. So he split his forces and drove both Persian armies back across the border. In a bonus for everyone, the army sent to Armenia captured all the possessions of the Persians they chased off, giving the men some loot to soothe their empty wallets. Germanus loyally sent some of the spoils to Maurice, who announced that he would confirm Priscus's order to restore the men's allowances. 
With one disaster averted, Priscus was appointed to take over the war with the Avars instead, who returned again in 588, but was defeated, just as Comentiolus had been. Another precious 60,000 gold coins were needed, followed by more later, to send the Avars home and keep them there. Back in the east, the pay arrived before the campaign season of 589, and the army accepted Philippicus as their commander once more. The Persians had actually achieved a remarkable success that year, when they captured the city of Martyropolis, which was about a hundred miles or so north of Dara, in Byzantine Armenia. A Byzantine soldier had brought 400 Persians to the city, claiming that they were deserting to the empire. It was actually he who was switching sides, and once inside the city, they broke free, opened the gates, and a Persian garrison took the city. However, this loss did not change the overall fortunes of the war in the east. The Byzantines kept getting the better of the Persians when the two sides met in battle. And finally, the next year, Maurice got the break he so desperately needed. Something I didn't mention last episode was that part of Tiberius's ramping up of the Byzantine presence in the east was the annexation of Lazica, the small kingdom to the north of Armenia that had been responsible for much of the conflict between Justinian and Khusro, was now seen as an ideal base for Byzantine invasions into Armenia. So Byzantine troops now occupied the borders, and that enabled Maurice to make friendly contact with the king of neighbouring Iberia. One of the Iberian princes, a Christian, was willing to take advantage of Persia's military defeats and had raided Persian Atropatine, their border province with both Iberia and Armenia. One of Persia's senior generals, Bahram, was sent to expel the invaders, which he did, but he was then defeated twice by the Byzantine commander Romanus, who was operating from Lazica. The story that comes down to us is that King Hormist was so exasperated by Bahram's defeats that he dismissed his general and sent along a woman's dress to let him know what he thought of his performance. Bahram was not amused and led his army in revolt against his king. We should note, though, that the story of the dress is one that comes up on another couple of occasions in the ancient literature, so it may not be true. It may be that Bahram was simply frustrated with his king's leadership, and instead of accepting his dismissal, decided that he could do a better job himself. You see, war had taken its toll on the Persians too. They had been at war non-stop since 572, and not just with the Byzantines. Remember Sisabal, the Kargan of the Turks. He was still attacking the Persians on their northern border. And another Turkic people, the Khazars, had now appeared a little east of Lazica and Iberia, and begun raiding Persian land. Bahram had just defeated the Turks in battle, and probably felt he didn't deserve to be treated so rudely after defeat by Byzantine forces. Bahram marched on Tessaphon. He was met in Mesopotamia by an army loyal to Hormist and defeated it. With the usurper's army closing in on the capital, the Persian nobles in the city panicked and killed King Hormist, proclaiming his son Khusro II as King of Kings. 
They hoped that the elevation of the twenty-year-old might mollify Baram. But as you know from the history of Rome, once a general turns against his emperor, they usually go all the way. Because if they back down now, they will soon be assassinated for being too dangerous to leave alive. So Baram marched on, surrounded the capital, and Khusro II fled. He left with his attendants and relatives, and they ran across the border to Byzantium. They made for the border city of Circesium, and sent messengers to Maurice. The king of kings would now very much like to talk peace with the emperor. With this extraordinary situation, I think we will leave the Eastern Front for now. After fighting for a decade, Maurice had finally been handed the opportunity for a lasting peace, and in two weeks I can assure you that both Bahram and Khusro II will be asking the Byzantines for a treaty. The Persians hadn't suffered a serious political crisis since the death of Peroz in battle with the Hephthalites way back in 484. The timing was perfect for Maurice. Just as he began to fear for the solvency of the empire, he was gifted an opportunity to end the war with Persia. And after spending eight years under the most tremendous pressure, the emperor would finally be able to transfer resources back to the Danube and deal with the Avars on his terms. Those were the main events of Maurice's first eight years on the throne. But there are a few other matters that we need to touch on. The first is Italy, where you'll recall Tiberius had sent a bribe to the Lombard dukes so that they would not elect a new king. The feeling in imperial circles was that if just one field army could be spared, then the Lombards would be crushed and Italy pacified. But as you know, there wasn't a single soldier to spare during this time, let alone an entire army. However, in 584, Maurice did attempt something when he sent some cash to the Frankish king Childebert II, asking him to invade and defeat the Lombards. The Franks had been a menace during the reconquest of Italy, but now were seen as potential allies in driving off the new settlers. The Byzantines still held most of the south of the country, so perhaps the Franks could be persuaded to deal with the problem in the north and then be paid to leave afterwards. Childebert did indeed invade, and the Lombards were defeated, but realising the peril in their disorganised situation, they quickly chose a new king, Ortharai, to organise a counterattack. This he did successfully, and two further invasions were repelled in 585 and 588. Although this attempt to outflank the Lombards did little more than drain the treasury of more cash, Maurice did make a far-sighted decision about the future governance of Italy and Africa. You may recall that when Belisarius first took Africa, his deputy Solomon was asked to carry the dual roles of governor of the province and master of soldiers. This combination of civilian and military authority was a temporary measure given the chaos that followed the Vandal War. Since then, the powers had been divided or coalesced, depending on circumstances. Maurice now permanently united them. The title of the new governor-generals would be the Exarch. With less secure control of the sea and land routes than in the Empire of Old, 
Maurice decided that the man on the ground should have all the power he needed to effectively govern his province. This designation was a recognition that Italy and Africa were on their own for the time being. Imperial help would come when it could, but with the Persians, Slavs and Avars presenting such a continuous threat to the central empire, the Exarchs understood the new reality. This sensible policy seems typical of Maurice's emperorship. As we've noted, he was a good administrator and excellent general, and the sources agree that he was honest and upright in his dealings. The empire was in good hands, at a time when it definitely needed to be, to avoid catastrophe. However, I should point out the criticisms leveled against the emperor by the historians of the day. For example, Maurice was not popular with the people. The empty treasury and enlarged army meant the emperor was forced to be thrifty with his public spending. This contrasted badly with Tiberius, who was much loved for remitting taxes and handing out prizes. Of course, this situation was hardly Maurice's fault, and it's clear that his predecessor's popularity was largely undeserved. And there's certainly irony in Maurice winning victories, which added to Tiberius's luster, only for that to be forgotten once the former had the keys to the treasury. But a rebellious army does nothing for an emperor's reputation, just ask Hormizd, and the mutiny in the east was not a good sign for Maurice's authority. The sources also point out that Maurice seemed to spend money on his family when claiming there was none available for anyone else. He promoted his father and brother to important positions in the government, and of course we've already met his brother-in-law, Philippicus. Apparently he found lavish mansions for all his kinsmen around the capital, and he's also said to have begun major work on turning Arabissus, his hometown, into a major city. When an earthquake struck, destroying what had been erected, the emperor began all over again. It's worth noting that Justinian too built a city in the place of his birth, but he didn't do that while the treasury was empty. It's hard to know the exact detail of situations like this. It seems clear that the Byzantines weren't actually struggling to make ends meet, but simply that Maurice kept seeing his treasury emptied and understandably tried to limit spending as much as possible. This almost always leads to unpopularity with the crowds in Constantinople, but that didn't seem to worry Maurice. They would come around when news of peace in Persia brought soldiers back home. This podcast began with an introduction from Ben Ashwell of the Talking History podcast on the Italian Unification. Ben and his brother have begun their series by giving an account of Italian history from the end of the empire in the West up to the focus of their podcast in the 18th and 19th centuries. You might be particularly interested in their bonus episode on the history of Venice, a city that will play an important role in our story as we go forward. Check them out at TalkingHistoryPodcast.com, on iTunes, or on Facebook. And keep your questions about 6th century Byzantium coming in. If I don't reply or comment on your question, then it has gone into the file to hopefully be answered soon. But check your post if you have asked a question, 
because I have answered some already, or at least asked for a clarification. <laughs>